Hi, I'm Jules van Binsbergen, a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Jonathan Burke, a finance professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about bubbles, financial market bubbles. Bubbles is an often used word. And I must say, Jonathan, I'm not quite sure how precisely defined it is. What do you think a bubble is? What does that mean? Yeah, Jules, I think that people routinely define bubbles when they notice that the price goes up by a lot and then drops by a lot. And it's not a very well-defined concept. And I think part of what we're going to do today is try to figure out, is there something there? Are there such things as bubbles or are these just examples of when the price goes up and down? Yeah, it seems like Alan Greenspan once said, a bubble is defined by the popping of it, meaning after you've seen the price go down by, say, 30%, that is when you know you had a bubble. But obviously, if you use exposed information to define it, shouldn't we need a definition of a bubble that you realize you're in it when it's happening? Isn't that more useful? Yeah, I think the other point you've made often is the price of a long-duration asset, the price of an asset which cash flows occur very, very long in the future is extremely sensitive to very small changes in either the growth rate of those cash flows or the discount rate of those cash flows. So you could imagine that small revisions in people's perceptions of what's going to happen could cause large price changes. And so the price could be driven up because people were optimistic and driven down because they were pessimistic. And I'm not sure I would call that a bubble. No, and I think that is particularly prevalent, say, for the, the recent increase and decrease in, in what we call these tech or growth firms, right? Those are examples of firms where we're expecting the cash flows to happen a long time in the future. If you expect that a firm will grow a lot towards the future, it means that the value of the stock comes from what you expect to happen in the distant future. And it's exactly these stocks that we've seen run up in value a lot and decrease in value a lot. Also, to add to that argument, Whenever we talk about bubbles, we're very used to immediately go to, say, stocks. We talk a little bit about Bitcoin and maybe tulips later, but most people think about bubbles when we talk about stock markets. But if you look at similarly duration bond instruments, say, just take simple 30-year government bonds. If you see how volatile those are, they're even more volatile than their duration-matched equity markets. So that really leads to the following conundrum. Either we must say that bubbles happen both in bond and stock markets, or maybe equity markets aren't this bubbly as we thought before. Maybe we should take a step back here and just go over what we mean by stock market volatility and what we mean by prices. I would say, look, the value of a company is the present value of all future cash flows. Investors who invest in the company, they purchase the company expecting to eventually get the free cash flows of the company. And then the obvious response is, but investors don't live forever. So how could they possibly get cash flows? They're going to last forever. And then as math professors, we say, no, 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 don't worry about that. They're eventually going to have to sell to another investor. And that investor is going to care about the cash flows. And so it's as if they cared about the cash flows. And I think people who are concerned about bubbles say, what if they sell to an investor who doesn't care about the cash flows? What if they sell to an investor who is investing for other reasons, perhaps because they think that later on the stock will be valued more than the value ascribed to the present value of the cash flows? 
So Jonathan, let's think that through a little better. So are there any limits to this process where you can keep selling the security to yet another investor at an even higher price, therefore sustaining the bubble? Are there limits to that process? Yes, Jules. They're very strict limits. And let's take a very simple example. Let's consider a zero coupon bond, a bond that pays no interest. And let's think about the price of that bond. So take an example, a $100 zero coupon bond that matures in a year from now. And assume interest rates are positive. So what's that bond worth in a year from now? Well, it'll be worth exactly $100 in a year from now. And what about one day before the maturity? What's it worth? Well, everybody knows the next day people are going to pay $100 for the bond. So the bond can't be worth more than $100 the day before because there's no scope for anybody paying more than $100. That means the bond will sell for no more than $100 the day before. What about the day before that? Well, everybody knows that one day before maturity, the bond cannot exceed for more than $100. That means two days before, everybody knows that nobody's going to pay more for that bond the next day. So again, the bond is not worth more than $100, and that process unwinds back to today. So a zero-coupon bond can't trade for more than $100. It can't have a bubble component. No, absolutely. So what we're saying is that if there's a finite end date to the security where we know that there's a fixed payoff at some point, that fixed payoff at that point is really going to discipline how much room there is for bubble-like components, and there isn't much room for it. So that means the only security for which you could get a bubble component is what we would call an infinitely lived security. And so people might wonder, what do we mean by that? We don't literally mean the security has to, the company, for example, has to live forever. All we mean is we don't know the end date. So imagine a stock, stocks are infinitely lived security. So a stock that has a finite probability of going bankrupt, since we don't know when that bankruptcy date will occur, that's an example of in, an infinitely lived security. And for those securities, there could be a bubble component. For sure. Because there you can, because there's not this disciplining effect of the fixed end date, even though at some point it might end, we don't know when. So in principle, it could live forever. We can always keep on selling the security for an even higher price to the next investor. But Jonathan, the reason why I find this, what we just discussed so interesting is that if we look at the volatility of government bonds and we duration match them to stocks, meaning we have both for the bonds and the stocks a claim on long-term cash flows, we actually find that the bonds are already very volatile, if not more volatile than the stocks. And so I really think there we have a choice to make, which is either we have to say there are no bubbles in equity markets, but the other alternative is to say, well, I think that bond markets have bubble components too. But that really gets us into trouble, particularly given the argument we just made, which was that bonds have this fixed endpoint. So how exactly is that going to work? I think that's there's a lot of work left to be done there. Yes, Jules, I agree with you. I think the view that we have a lot of bubbles in asset pricing is probably incorrect. There may be bubbles, but you know we have to look at them very skeptically and look at particular incidences. As we said before, the way people define a bubble is the price goes up by a lot and down by a lot. The fact is, prices can go up by a lot and down by a lot for other reasons other than bubbles. I agree with that. What is the most likely place where I think we would be comfortable at least debating whether or not there is a bubble or not, which is the recent increase and decrease in Bitcoin prices, right? It seems very difficult for us to rationalize why Bitcoin is doing what it's doing. Although, you know, 
you never know what something like Bitcoin could derive its value from, right? It does have transactional values to use that currency, maybe in black market activity, but even as a payments means. I find it very hard to believe that the value of Bitcoin, it being as high as it is, can derive from purely a transactional value, as I often say. I've been wrong about Bitcoin so often that I don't think you should, anybody should listen to my view of Bitcoin. With that said, it seems to me that there is a bubble component to Bitcoin, just like there's a bubble component to any currency. The US dollar has a bubble component. The only reason the US dollar has value is that I know somebody else will take the US dollar. Now, some economists say, no, no, because we know that you can pay your taxes with dollar bills. And so as a result, because of that, the dollar has value. But I'm not sure that's that different from a bubble component. I mean, who are paying taxes to? Are paying taxes to each other? I would say that the best example of a bubble is paper currency. With that in mind, I think that the guest that we're having on today is an expert in the history of bubbles and has studied many interesting ones, and we're going to discuss some of them with him. But on top of that, he has also recently written a book on the history of money and how the existence of money and the existence of currency has really changed everything. The guest that we have today is called Will Gutsman. He's the Edwin Beinecke Professor of Finance and Management Studies at Yale University. Welcome, Will. You have done a lot of work on the history of bubbles, and many people are aware of maybe the first well-known bubble in history, which is the tulip mania bubble in the Netherlands. But are there less well-known historical bubbles that you've discovered in your research that you think people should know about? Well, there's one bubble that's really important in the history of capital markets. And that's a bubble that occurred in 1720, which is not a date that many people would think of, but it was an interesting episode in the emergence of stock markets and also in the uh, shock to them. In 1720, there was a global stock market bubble that uh, occurred in London, in Paris, in Amsterdam, and then also spread all throughout maybe 20 different European countries. So quite an extraordinary episode of enthusiasm about stocks. And um, it was a big bubble because prices rose over the course of a year, 10 times over. So imagine that. And the term millionaire actually was invented at that time because so many people in Paris were finding themselves overnight millionaires. So it was quite an episode of speculative activity huge fortunes made. And then within the course of a year, prices precipitously dropped in all of those places. So, well, the question is, bubbles are notoriously hard to identify ex ante. So how would you define a bubble? I get around a lot of the complexity of the definition of a bubble by just defining it as a rapid rise in asset prices followed by a rapid decline. When I define bubbles for empirical analysis, I look at countries where the stock market doubled in real terms, that is inflation-adjusted terms, within one year, and then declined in the following year by the same percentage. So doubles and then halves. That would be something that most people would think of as a bubble, even though there may be different economic drivers to that, it helps us think about what is of most interest to people, which is a sudden rise and decline in asset prices. 
And well, what do you find? You know, if the stock market doubles in a year, what's the probability it's going to halve in the next year? Well, you know, first of all, in the United States, with U.S. capital markets, it hasn't happened very often. Bubbles are extremely rare. That's an important thing for people to understand. A lot of people are interested in bubbles, but they're not something that many people experience in their lives. People are fascinated with those kind of extreme events and disasters, but I believe they worry too much about them. Give you an example. One of the exercises that I did was to collect over 100 years worth of data from 42 different stock markets around the world and then just count up the number of times that stock markets doubled in real terms over the course of one year. And then I asked how many times after that happened did the stock price give up those gains in the next year or the next three years? The answer is those kind of shocks, those kind of rises in stock prices happened, oh, roughly 1% of the time when you look across all of the stock market in the world over more than a century. Then the question is, how often did they give those gains back? And what I found is if we're looking at just the one-year horizon, you were just as likely to see your stocks double again in value as you were to see the stocks have in value. So imagine that you've just seen your stock portfolio in a given country double in price. Should you sell out? Well, you should think about it as it's a 50-50 chance whether it's going to go up again or down again. Now, you may say, I like the idea of locking in my gains, but you should realize that you're also then eliminating the possibility that it's going to double in value. Over the longer term, which is what most people think of anyway, the stock markets that have doubled in value are much more likely to have a long-term increase as opposed to a long-term decrease. So that's also somewhat comforting to people who are wondering whether they should get out if there's some big technological boom in prices and so on. If in the definition we have the decline in it, this was also, I think, famously how Alan Greenspan, if I'm not mistaken, defined it, right? For him also, I think the definition very much included the exposed event, which did then suggest that identifying them in real time is notoriously hard, as you said earlier, because there is still that probability that things will keep on going up. In fact, over the long run, the probability is even higher that they keep on going up. So is there a case to be made that bubbles are just economists exposed trying to explain what just happened without having any real-time forecastable implications? Would that be fair or is that too harsh? Oh, no, I agree with you 100%. We don't know what a bubble is until uh, the stock price has already gone down. Exactly. Of course, everybody wants to know whether they can forecast a bubble. But let's face it, if, if it only happens 1% of the time or a little bit more, we don't really have a lot of good data to be able to forecast it. Now, there have been famous bubbles throughout history, but I think that those bubbles really, the focus on those bubbles is really based on human emotion and interest in disasters and extreme events. It's funny, you know, you mentioned the tulip mania. Now, the fact is that was a tiny bubble in commodity futures that happened in the middle of the 17th century in the Netherlands. It didn't affect a lot of people. It didn't affect the economy very much. 
but it captured people's imagination because people are fascinated with the idea that money could be made overnight. And then they are also fascinated with the idea that suddenly those riches could evaporate. And so I think we have to look at our motivations for being fascinated with bubbles. And I think some of them just go back to human stories about, oh, even Greek myths like Daedalus and Icarus flying too close to the sun and and a hubris of people thinking that they can change their lot and so forth. But economically speaking, we really have a hard time trying to predict whether we're in a bubble on the way up or to figure out when asset prices might start to decline after a run-up. So I have one more question about the tulip mania. There's several movies made about the tulip mania. And one thing that I thought was crazy was that Despite the fact that these tulip bulbs had these amazing values, people had tulips planted outside. Is it possible that if they were really that valuable that you could actually have them accessible to everybody? You can have a tulip planted just outside of your doorstep or in a field. Wasn't it really difficult to physically maintain them or plant them if they were this valuable? The story of tulip mania is a fascinating one because it has to do with uncertainty and a love of the exotic and interesting forms that can emerge through that uncertainty. A tulip comes from a bulb, and you have to plant it in the ground, and then you have to wait and see what happens. So there's this passage of time, and there's this uncertainty about it. You hope that the bulb that you've gotten is something that will have a weird feature to it. Now we look at tulips. We can buy yellow tulips and white tulips and red tulips. But the things that people in this golden age in the Netherlands were interested in is the variation in the shape and color of the petals and the rare occasion when you would get something that just nobody else had. So that is where the hope and speculation was coming from, that you hope that this bulb that comes from its parent might share the same characteristics, but you actually don't know. So Anyway, the speculation about getting the rarest of the rare is one of the drivers of the tulip mania. Well, Will, you mentioned that, you know, the tulip bubble was isolating in the terms of the fact that it didn't have much effect on the world. What do you think the biggest bubbles, deleterious bubbles were in terms of affecting the world when they popped? We know that the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 was associated with increase in housing prices. And we know that the decline in those prices led to financial stress that spread throughout the world. So I'd say in our memory, that's really one of the most economically relevant bubbles. Is it generally agreed that it was a bubble that caused those housing prices to go up? Well, remember, When I define a bubble, it's only defined by prices going up and prices going down and not trying to claim that there's some fundamental deviation between the economic value and the asset value. What about the run-up in real estate prices in Tokyo in 1990? I mean, they still are nowhere near that level, right? Yes, that's correct. Although I haven't done much measurement of that. The real estate bubble in Tokyo in uh, Japan is really a famous event. But certainly affected Japan's, let's not talk about cause and effect. It was certainly an extraordinary rise in asset prices. One thing about us and the Great Recession 
was that we were pretty good about taking the medicine and shutting down institutions that should have been shut down. Not so much in Japan, right? I mean, I think some people would argue we're still suffering from the dead overhang that resulted from the bursting of that bubble. Now, we're a little bit off the subject here, but one of the things that my colleague Andrew Metric has done is to say, let's collect all the information we can about regulatory reactions to periods of extraordinary distress. So he's interested in systemic risk. And what you're really talking about are what lessons might we draw from Japan's reaction or lack of reaction to the rise in asset prices? And could we learn from that what not to do? And so I think that's a reasonable thing, but to collect the data systematically is important because it's easy to say, oh, let me pluck this famous catastrophe out of the history and another one like this. But if you're going to try and develop an understanding of what policies worked and didn't, you have to be comprehensive about it. One of the things that's fascinating when we look at bubbles, and I say we because I pretty much always work in teams to do that, is that the crash of 1987, when it happened, was thought of as some kind of massive disaster. To have the U.S. stock market go down by 21% in a day, people thought the sky was falling. And so immediately, a lot of research was focused on what caused this, why did this happen, it turns out that if you look at the year of 1987 and you'd bought it in January and gone to sleep and sold in December, you know, it wasn't such an unusual year. And then people were worried, well, this crash of 21%, that's bigger than the one-day crash in 1929. Are we going to have a huge depression? Well, guess what? It didn't happen either. One of the lessons we should draw from the reactions to bubbles is not to hastily try and regulate the market, to try and put big constraints as a result of these shocks. I know that's kind of scary to think that bubbles are scary to people, but let me return to the 1720 bubble for a moment. One of the things that happened in London is that there were dozens of companies that were set up at that time that were new technology companies, new mining processes, new chemical processes, new plans to uh, explore under the sea, even a company set up to fund a flying machine. So this reminds us a lot of the 1990s and the tech company explosion that we had in the United States. Anyway, 1720 saw a massive amount of capital flowing into creative new entrepreneurial ideas that didn't have anything to do with those big trading companies focused on Atlantic trade and slave trade. When the crash came, and it was partially spurred by some financial constraints to begin with, Parliament decided in its wisdom that it would not allow stock market trading at all, except for a few companies that members of Parliament actually had their own investments. <laughs> we went from a an economy that had all sorts of potential for industrial development by accessing equity capital to an economy that was very constricted in the way that it could deploy capital to new ideas. Weirdly enough, in 1720, 
you could see the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, not financed by private equity, but financed by public equity. When Parliament passed something called the Bubble Act and made it illegal, the trade in stocks, or at least your trades couldn't be defended in a court of law if, if you did, when that happened, all those little companies, the capital was turned off. And then in the Netherlands, there was a similar kind of boom in new companies, particularly insurance companies and also some infrastructure companies and so forth. Similarly, all of that came to a screeching halt because people were very upset about the fact that there was a boom and then a crash and that a lot of people had lost money, even though they bought at the peak. So this tendency to clamp down on capital markets after one of these events was harmful. Yeah, it's tempting as a regulator to respond immediately after such an event has happened and then to try to also make people feel better and say this will not happen again if we impose the right regulations. Yeah. Right, but if you combine that with the insights that you said earlier, which is that particularly from an ex-ante point of view, it's very difficult to predict whether we're in a bubble, yes or no. Any of this regulation is doomed to fail, if you think about it. Well, whenever you see a bubble, it's worth looking around to try and understand what innovation people are speculating on, Yes. what big technological or legal or whatever, what big change is getting people excited enough to bid up asset prices quickly, and then think about the consequences of restricting the access to capital by those entrepreneurs. One thing I forgot to mention is that even though I haven't circulated a paper, I've done a lot of work on NFTs. Oh, good. What do you think of him? It is wonderful to be an economist at a time when we have seen a bubble of the scale of tulip mania, to be living at a time when we had prices go up by a thousandfold in things that are aesthetic objects, right? These NFTs are not designed to generate income, neither were the tulips. That's just fascinating. And then to have the prices drop back down again, to understand what happens to a market like that when liquidity uh, suddenly disappears. I'm not that familiar. I didn't even know this happened. I just, last I heard was like, a, was like, I don't know how many years ago, maybe two years ago, I was at a conference where people were talking about it. But so the price went up and it came down precipitously in a small art market. In 2017, almost nobody knew what an NFT was. And then in early 2019, there was a sale at Christie's of a work by Mike Winkleman, who better known as Beeple, for $69 million. And this got so many people excited about the possibility of becoming overnight millionaires that speculation in this arcane area of art just boomed. Then prices rose over the course of 2020. Then in 2021, they started to get shaky. Then with the decline in cryptocurrency, the prices of NFTs dropped again dramatically. Now, I'm guessing they're probably a little bit higher now than they were in 2017. But for me, as an econometrician that likes to index unusual assets, that's what I've been up to lately. Well, I'd love to see the paper that comes out of this. Yes. Yeah. We'd love to read it. Well, Will, thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Thank you, Will. It was really interesting. Thank you guys for doing this. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcast. We'd love to hear from our listeners. 
And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal Podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.